All right. Um, welcome again. We are going to open up uh, God's Word together. So if you have your own Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to uh, 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians in the New Testament portion of the Bible. If you need a Bible, uh, there is one in a seat rack in front of you. If you do not own a Bible, then take that one home as a gift from us to you. Uh, we'll spend the next four Sundays in this uh, one chapter in the Bible. I did want to highlight that there were some Easter invites in the bulletins, and there's a few more available out on that U. Uh, just encourage you just to pray about inviting a person to the Easter service. Uh, and, and I would encourage you to like not like leave this uh, to your, you know, with your waitress at the end of a restaurant, because uh, guess what? They ain't coming. Uh, but to go to a friend and just say, I'd really appreciate if you'd come, you know, and just... Uh, the service will be centered around the resurrection, and we will try to just help articulate uh, the good news of Christianity faithfully on Easter Sunday, and just honor uh, the God who's conquered sin, death, and hell uh, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, but let's let's begin uh, in a word of prayer. Lord, my prayer now is that you would open our eyes, and you would open our ears that we would both see and hear uh, the wonderful things that you have preserved in your word. These are for us and our children. We are asked in the word of God to commend the works of the God from one generation to another. And so I want to thank you for the generations ahead of me who were faithful to teach me I'm thankful for the children's church workers, nursery workers, Sunday school workers who will uh, now and later commend the works of the Lord God to another generation. And we will do this faithfully until you return. But we also know that no amount of preparation or skill or rhetoric will change a single soul. But God changes people. So change me, change those gathered this morning. I pray for the ministry of the word that's going on across uh, this city and this region today in various churches, um, partner churches, friends in ministry. I pray that you would bless uh, the hearing and teaching uh, from those uh, pastors and preachers as well. We need your word and we need uh, your spirit to help us understand it. And so we ask that you would work in our hearts and our minds in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So have you ever waited in line for a lengthy period of time only to find out when you finally got to the front that you had been in the wrong line? Or probably more common, have you ever sat on hold for a very long time that by the time you have a human person on the other end of the line, they inform you that they will now be transferring you to the person that you need to be speaking with. Um, that sense of frustration, disappointment, feel like you maybe you were, you were cheated all that time. It wasn't worth it. Um, and then maybe you've read some, or maybe this is part of your story, uh, but stories of those who uh, were raised in maybe a religious cult or a religious hate group. And, you know, after years or maybe decades of oppression and lies, they finally get out and they have all those regrets because what you believe affects how you live. And they realize that what they had been taught and what they were believing was resulting in they were passing on the poison or not able to have any hope. 
the, the scripture that we're looking at today is uh, Paul's uh, portion in this particular letter on basically how to avoid spiritual frustration or how to avoid spiritual regrets, how to make sure you don't have religion wrong. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, I just want to give a, just a kind of a summary of how the Bible is divided up so you understand it. So the Bible is in two major sections. Uh, it is a large book, and so it helps to kind of know how it's divided up. It's in two major sections. So about the first three quarters of the Bible is called the Old Testament. I heard one person call it the Older Testament. Um, but that was written by dozens of authors over a time period of about 1,000 years, from about 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C. And it's uh, the record of God's dealings, primarily with the people of Israel, but it includes everything from the creation of Adam and Eve uh, to the story of the exodus of Israel out of Egypt, to the people of Israel, um, up until about uh, 400 years before the birth of Jesus Christ um, is the Old Testament. The New Testament is the story and the history of the life of Jesus Christ and the early church. The New Testament has um, really three sections it has history, which are the first five books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and his teachings. The book of Acts is another book of history, which is the early church uh, for about the first 30 or so years of the church. And then it moves to 21 letters. So you have history, then you have letters of uh, spiritual leaders, uh, apostles writing to churches, um, saying church is difficult, Christianity is difficult. Let me try to explain this to you. And then the last book is the book of Revelation, which has some teaching for the people of that day and then some stuff about the future. We're in one of those 21 letters uh, written by a man named Paul. Paul wrote 13 of the 21 letters, two to a city in uh, um, Greece or Achaia, um, Macedonia called Corinth. And the first one is called First Corinthians, first letter of the Corinthians. We're going to be in the 15th chapter today. I want to read to you verses 1 through 11. Another thing about the Bible, how it divides up, is the big numbers in a book are called chapters, and the smaller numbers are verses. Those were not original. They were added much later so that you could find things in the Bible more quickly. Right? So this is how the Bible is broken up to help us begin to use it, hopefully, and read it with a little bit of understanding. So I'm in the first letter, 1 Corinthians, big number 15, and I'm going to read uh, the verses 1 through 11, the small numbers. Paul writes to this church in the first century, probably around 52, 53 AD. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom who are still living though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am 
and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. This is God's word. Okay, so what it says right there in verse 1 is he says, I want to remind you of what I preached to you. And that word remind could be clarify. I want you to know this gospel. Um, The word gospel uh, comes from a Greek word that means good news or glad tidings. Uh, The gospel, uh, it it was a fairly everyday word in the Greco-Roman world. In particular, there would be a gospel when a new Caesar was made Caesar, a new king. And they would send heralds in all the cardinal directions, and they'd go out to all the major cities and provinces. And they would proclaim the good news that emperor so-and-so was now emperor. Which really wasn't good news for most people, by the way. Um, but this, this, good, this gospel of a new king would be sent out. Well, the message of Christianity is that Caesar is not king, but Jesus is king. And what Paul is going to do in these, verse, these 11 verses is he wants to clarify and remind what is the Christian gospel. What is the truth so that it leaves no spiritual regrets so that you know what is right to believe and where there is actual hope. Um, the, the letter to the first Corinthians, this letter that Paul wrote, uh, was because he had got word that this church that he had started around 49 AD, so the apostle Paul was a missionary, and he would go to cities and he would tell people about Jesus and he would establish leaders and churches and then he would leave. Well, he had caught word from two different sources that things were uh, confused uh, and there were practices that were inappropriate in the church in Corinth. He heard firsthand testimony, so people brought him news. They also sent a letter. And so the letter to the First Corinthians is a series of uh, sections where Paul's addressing different things that he's heard about. And what we're going to find out over the next series of sermons is the issue that he's really addressing, the big issue that he's addressing in this section of the letter is the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection of human persons. But he really doesn't get to the topic until verse 12. Verse 1 through 11, he's just saying, hey, what is the foundational truths that we're preaching and believing? We're going to get to this issue that you don't understand, but let's just you know, uh, get what is Christianity in its purest forms? And this is probably one of the best summaries in the entire Bible about what is the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings that have been herald for, heralded for 2,000 years. And here it is. And I want to show kind of three interlocking truths that he wants us to know about this gospel so that we can get our minds around the good news and make sure we have clarity on it. The, these three truths are that the gospel is already and not yet, The gospel is historical and theological, and the gospel is corporate, then personal. I want to jump in. The gospel is already and not yet. Now, when it says here in verse 1, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by this gospel you are saved. This is the idea that when the good news of Jesus Christ comes out, And people receive it, believe it, take their stand on it, that is, build their lives around it. There is a salvation moment now for the Christian. 
It was for the Christians in Corinth in 49 AD when they heard the gospel go forth and they believed it. They were saved by God. Um, some of, you know, Jesus in John 5.24, uh, he explained kind of the already nature of salvation. Even in his early earth, earthly ministry, John 5.24, lips of Jesus during his earthly ministry, he taught, very truly, I tell you. Does Jesus ever not tell the truth? Why does he have to say that? I'm sorry. Very truly, I tell you, whoever has ears, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense verb, eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. So when there is a belief in who Jesus is and what he had come to accomplish and what he came to do and they believed in him at that moment, there was this transfer of allegiance They're no longer in the realm of the dead, the guilty. They cross over to life. And that is an already aspect of any person who believes in Jesus. They are alive to God. Uh, Some of the terms in the Bible, it says you you can be in a right standing with God. You can have a right relationship with God. If you're a young child and you've done something wrong, and you, you, you feel that guilt because you've done something to your mom or dad or your sibling, you know what it means to not feel right with someone. Well, we're born in that kind of relationship with God the Father because we've wronged and we're guilty and we don't feel right with him. Jesus came so that we could be right with our heavenly Father. And when you believe in Jesus, you're made right with the Father. Uh, the Bible also talks about that we come alive to God. That there's this a spiritual awakening in our souls. Some of the biblical languages being born again. Uh, um, Jeff, during the worship service, he quoted 2 Corinthians 5.17 where it says, therefore anyone who is in Christ, in a relationship with Christ, they're alive to God. They become a new person, alive spiritually. The old things of death and sin and addiction go that way and we begin to live with God. We have access with God. We have the Holy Spirit living in our lives. These are already things that any person believes they have that with God. And, and Paul wants these Corinthians to know that. But he also wants them to know that there are some things about the gospel that are not yet true. And if, you had, if we had spent time in all uh, 14 chapters of this letter, you would realize this is probably the big, one of the biggest problems in this church at that time. They were kind of hyper-spiritual people. They thought that they had arrived. Uh, if you turn back to chapter four, big number, little number eight, you, you get a sense of how spiritual and how powerful they thought they already were. And uh, Paul uses pretty strong language, uh, some form of cynicism or maybe sarcasm, kind of because of what they believed about themselves. Verse eight, he says, Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. And that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. So they had come to believe uh, that they had arrived spiritually. And some of this was because there was this major manifestation of spiritual gifts in that church. And they thought, look, we have all these gifts. We're ahead of the game. We are experiencing God like no one has ever done before. Uh, There's a scholar by the name of Gordon Fee. 
And he kind of summarizes this Corinthian hyper-spirituality this way. He writes, in their view, by the reception of the Spirit, and especially the gift of tongues, they had already entered the true spirituality that is to be. Already they had begun a form of angelic existence in which the body was unnecessary and unwanted and would finally be destroyed. This is why they're going to eventually doubt or the need for a resurrection. They have everything right now. They're alive. They're amazing. And here's the thing. Paul wants to affirm, you've got spiritual gifts. God is at work in you. But there is more to come. And so, slow down. Probably some in that church uh, thought that because they had been filled with the Holy Spirit, they could trust their, their, their desires and their instincts. And some of them took those desires and instincts to brothels and thought, What's, this is just a body. I'm alive to God. What could happen? And Paul says, this is what could happen. You could get bonded to that person and you could get all wrapped up in all kinds of horrible things. This is in the end of 1 Corinthians 6. And so Paul, in fact, if you read some of the translations, English translations, probably get verse 2 better than the translation we read from this morning because it'll say, uh, if you hold to the gospel, it says you are being saved. Like there is a salvation moment that has happened, but there is more to come. God is still trying to work out in you what he has begun in you, but you don't have it all yet. So we should actually question some of our desires and some of our instincts. How we feel is not the good arbiter of morality or goodness. And so the gospel is already, but it's not yet. One of the things for us, uh, just before we kind of move on to this second section, because salvation is both already and not yet, some of us need to um, believe and trust that God is working in us to live godly Christian lives. That is, we can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. If you are caught in any addiction, by the blood of Jesus Christ, you can be freed and live a new life. The Holy Spirit is in you. But he's also giving you the church. So don't just do this al alone. Invite brothers and sisters to help you. Invite a small group to pray for you. But God has gifted you through salvation in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to give you new freedoms. But we all, some of us need to know that not, we don't have everything yet, what has been promised for us. We have we're gonna go through trials. Being a Christian does not allow you to escape from trial. In fact, it might invite more of them. And so when they come into your life, it's not because you're not spiritual. It's not because you, you know, we don't have a tit-for-tat God. You know, me and my kids this week get audited by the IRS next week. That's not how God works. But we will face trials, and we will suffer. We won't, our prayers won't all get answered. And I'm reading the book of Job right now. Um, I don't know why that's happening to you. <laughs> God never tells Job what's going on. So he certainly hasn't told me what's going on in your Job-like life. Gospel is already, but it's not yet. There's still good to come, and we're gonna wade through those seasons of complexity and, and confusion. But good is coming. Come back for more sermons on the resurrection. It's good, and it's gonna get better, but there's much suffering till then. So prepare for trials and temptation. Be ready to suffer. 
All of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, has nothing to do with romance or hallmark. It's about sacrifice and service for the sake of others. And so Paul's inviting, okay, if you're filled with the Spirit, go love people. And you, know, you haven't loved until it hurts because real love always takes something from you. So we want to press on in this already but not yet salvation, this already but not yet gospel. But secondly, I want you to know about this gospel. Paul wants us to know about this gospel. It is a historical gospel rich in theological significance. <laughs> historical and theological. What you have in verses three through eight is just a historical record of what Jesus did. And he just, he's, just, he's just recording history. This is no fairy tale. This is not a legend. This is not a myth. A first century person who lived in the promised land of Israel named Jesus of Nazareth was eventually crucified on a Roman cross in real space, time, and history in Jerusalem, probably close to 33 AD, and he died. Stinky dead, so they buried him. And they rolled a rock over it. But three days later, in real space, time, and history, a real person with real flesh and blood resurrected from the dead. We know from the Gospels, the first people he appeared to were women, which if you were trying to convince the world you wouldn't record that the first witnesses were women because at that time, women's testimony meant nothing in a court of law. But the gospel accounts are true, so they said, he appeared to women first. And then here in 1 Corinthians, it says he appeared to Cephas, which is uh, the Aramaic name for Peter. We know the apostle Peter. He appeared to Peter. Uh, I'm just reading this. Uh, then he appeared to the other uh, original band, the 12 disciples that included great names like Matthew, you should name your children that. Any Luke's out there? John's? See, we got some John's. Now oh, you're testing me. Those are good ones. James's? So we have these, so he appears to these, and then it says, verse 6, after that, Jesus appeared. This is a physical appearance. This isn't like some sort of holographic glow. He appeared to 500 people at one time, men and women. And then Paul says, most of them are still living. You can go talk to these people. Most of them are still alive. They'll tell you about this. And then he says, then he appeared to James. That's his brother, who would later be one of the leaders in the first century church in Jerusalem. If you can convince a sibling that you're the Messiah, you probably are. And then it says, and then last of all, the physical resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul when he was then known Saul as a church persecutor, religious leader. He appeared physically and bodily to Paul on the road to Damascus and literally knocked him off the high horse. That's where that expression comes from. What could possibly change a man like that? A real space-time occurrence in history of a man dead, buried, and now resurrected from the dead saying, Paul, or he actually says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So that's the history. 
Christianity is the most historic religion because we are the most falsifiable religion. If these things are not true, there is no Christianity. Hinduism is not rooted in history. The teachings in Hinduism, they're fairly timeless and awe-historical. That is, history doesn't matter. New Age teaching, history doesn't matter. Paganism, modern paganism, about primordial spirits and things of that nature, it doesn't need history. Christianity needs history or we have nothing at all. These events occurred or we should all be sleeping in. (laughs) If you just want to turn quickly back just to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke was a physician, um, but I think he has a little bit of engineer in him because he wanted to check the facts and double-check the facts, you know, measure twice, cut once. Luke was a measure three times kind of guy. Just, just listen to this physician. When he was getting ready to prepare a historical recounting of what had happened in the life of Jesus, he does his research. He writes in verse 1, many have undertaken, so Luke 1.1, 1, 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. What we have in the gospel accounts were by meticulous researchers who said, we're going to get the facts straight. We're going to talk to eyewitnesses, and we're going to record something for you. Christianity, the good news of Christianity, it's historical, but it's filled with theological significance. And one of the key ideas of, of theological significance is the, re, he, the two different expressions in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, where it says, according to the scriptures. That word scripture means the inspired writings of God. It's talking primarily, uh, he's talking about those Old Testament scriptures. That first three quarters of the Bible that was written from 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C., What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Jesus Christ, Christ is a title, not a last name. Jesus the Messiah, the reason he is the Messiah is he fulfilled what that thousand years of writings from God said needed to happen. One of the absolute first prophecies in the Bible about the coming Messiah is Genesis 3.15 where God says to Satan, one day... A child, a son from a woman is going to stomp on your head, brother. He's coming. If you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53, some of the most kind of stark prophecies about the Messiah dying according to the scriptures and dying in particular for sins. You find in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, this is written several hundred years, up to 700 years before the birth of Jesus. What will the Messiah do? What will he be like? Why is he coming? Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 say, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And yet before this chapter is out, it says this one who will die for the sins of God's people isn't going to stay dead. Uh, Go to verse 10 in Isaiah 53. It says, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, offerings in the Old Testament mean sacrifices burnt up. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will still see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. These are the things that the Messiah had to fulfill to be the Messiah. And Jesus has done these things, which is why Paul bent the knee, Peter bent the knee, James, the brother of Jesus, bent the knee, because the things that happened in history had theological significance. Martin Luther King died for a noble cause. Socrates died to kind of prove a point. But Jesus died for our sins. Romans 4, 25, Jesus was died for our sins, but he resurrected for our justification. This is what God does in Christ. He has theological significance, and he was not to stay dead. If you turn back just to Psalm 16, verses um, 9 and 10, I believe. This is an interesting prophetic word about the great and true king. says, therefore my heart is glad. Psalm 16, verse nine. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Did you catch that? You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. The faithful one to come, the Messiah, the Christ, his body wasn't gonna decay. It was going to resurrect triumphantly. Christianity is historical and it is theological. We, this is, we, we, what we have, because these things hold together, is we, we have Jesus who is a divine redeemer in human form who came in human history solving the human problem. Did you catch all that? We have a divine redeemer who comes in human form in real human history and he, he solves the real human problem. The human problem is not bad education. It's not bad housing. It's not Democrats, nor Republicans, nor Libertarians. The real human problem is in the heart of humanity and it's called sin. And Jesus died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and three days later he rose from the dead. I want to close with Well, Paul moves on. He wants the Corinthians and now us to know that the gospel is corporate, then personal. Corporate, then personal. So verse nine, he says, for I am the least of the apostles. Um, He says, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. 
Whether then, whether then it is I, the Apostle Paul, or they, the other apostles who saw the resurrected Jesus, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. It's very important, fellow Christians, church in particular, to know that Christianity is first and foremost about a corporate people of God that Jesus purchased with his blood. It's kind of cool, kind of sexy today to say I'm spiritual but not religious. Um, I talked to a, a, a really decent Marian citizen this week who, you know, expressed something you hear often. I, I don't like organized religion. What Paul has done in this section is he's actually defending his own authority. If you read back earlier in 1 Corinthians, you find out that some people didn't think too highly of Paul. Some really liked the Apostle Peter. Some liked this up-and-coming preacher named Apollos. Some people, they didn't like Paul. And Paul is saying, I am a part of the church of the living God who has seen the resurrected Jesus Christ, and I am presenting to you the gospel that we all treasure and share so that you might believe. We are one family preaching one gospel about one Christ that produces one hope of salvation. And this is for the people of God. Friends, we should treasure organized religion because it started that way. Now, some of you have been hurt by organized religion, uh, and I have too. But we should treasure the corporate church. We should treasure and, I, and I, I mean that both here, this local church, we should treasure the, the corporate church globally. We should treasure the, 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 the corporate church in this city because the gospel passes from church to church to church to church to church. Churches come from the gospel. Uh, just a good reminder of where the gospel comes from is Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 20, when Paul writes, consequently, you... Gentile Christians in Ephesus, but now everyone, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're now fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So the New Testament apostles, the Old Testament prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The gospel comes through the church, corporately. And then you hear the gospel personally and believe it. Know that the gospel comes through the church and that's a wonderful gift. It's very tempting, especially when you live in America, that's very individualized to make all corporate manifestations of the church secondary and you and your Bible with your fancy coffee mug with a Bible verse primary. The history of the church, and I think the tenor of the New Testament says the heartbeat of Christianity is in the church and then in the heart of individuals. The call to unity in the church, the call to wait to love one another as brothers and sisters in the church. This is the tenor of the New Testament. This is what Jesus was building. And so we when these Corinthians were trying to kind of pick and choose which Christians they like and pick and choose which apostle they like, Paul's like, don't do that. We're heralding the one gospel. We're part of one family. Don't let that happen. 
Don't let that happen. I want to close with two illustrations, then I want us to take the Lord's Supper. The gospel is corporate, uh, but then it's personal. And the image I just want you to remember uh, is when you, you go to a vending machine and that you put coins in, you know, every now and again, it's always the last coin, right? It doesn't quite fall. You know, it costs a dollar fifty for twenty ounces of soda now, and so you get a you get you put all dollar fifty in and nothing happens. And you can you could you know how it goes clink clink, and you hear that like it didn't go all the way down. And so what do you do? You, yeah, it's either the pelvic thrust. If you're a Baptist, that's dancing. Um, you know, or you know you hit it, or maybe you do the rattle thing, even though it says please do not rattle, and then the coin drops. And you're like, glory, die Mountain Dew, right? It's coming. At some point in my life, and many of you, the coin dropped for you, and this, this message about Jesus hit your heart. It might have been rattling up in your head, but it didn't, you know, but then the coin drops, and you're like, he died for my sins. It's not this our sin stuff. He died for my sins. That's when the, go- the gospel goes from corporate to personal. It goes from historical and theological to personal. My, my prayer for anyone in this room that the coin hasn't dropped, that it would fall. That you begin to believe this good news. Receive it. Take your stand on it. To say, I believe in Jesus. That historical man is now my Savior. It's one of the beautiful things if you read through the the Psalms, there's all these personal pronouns. My God, my Savior. Can you say that? Can Can you use that personal pronoun? This is my Jesus. This is my Savior. This is my God. I believe he's done this for me. I pray that the coin would drop. The second image is something that probably most of us don't do. Um, but there's beautiful paintings in the world that you have to look at for a very long time to appreciate it. Uh, there's that old movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He goes and sees the little dot painting. I think it's in the Chicago Museum of Art. Um, I've seen this painting. And you gotta get real close. And that's pretty cool. And then you back up and you're like, Whoa, that's really cool. Those of you who've trusted in Jesus, the goal for you is not to look for some new hyper-spiritual experience. It's to see the same Jesus. And sometimes you move closer to see a little more beauty and amazement, and sometimes you stand back and you see some amazement. But the goal is to see this same Jesus who died on the same cross, who provides the same salvation, but it becomes more deeply incorporated in your soul, and it begins to change you. The best quote on this I ever got was from a 19th century Baptist named Alexander McLaren. He writes, Christian progress does not consist in seeing new things, but in seeing the old things more clearly. The same Christ, the same cross, only more distinctly and deeply apprehended and more closely incorporated in my very being. If you're not a Christian, I pray the coin drops and you say, my God, my Savior. Those of you who have trusted in Jesus, I want you to hear the same gospel. Jesus Christ died for you. He was buried for you. He rose again for you. 
and we revel in this. I'll read verses one through two again as kind of our closing. Pray, and then we'll take the supper. He says, now, brothers and sisters, remember, this is written to Christians. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved or you are being saved. If, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Father, I'm thankful for the good news of Jesus Christ. This good news is already, but not yet, historical and theological, corporate, beautifully corporate, and yet still deeply personal for those who have believed personally in the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, who are then filled with the Holy Spirit. This is good news. Thanks be to God. Amen.